0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I am Jody Vance in for Simi today. And the hot question of the day, which can be found at CKNW, at Jody Vance on Twitter, is after this crazy weather week, we really want you to get it off your chest and answer the question... What was your biggest frustration over the last weather event? Was it dumb drivers? Was it road conditions? Unshoveled sidewalks? Or were you frustrated with transit? Give us your vote on our hot question of the day, again, at CKNW or on my Twitter, at Jody Vance, J-O-D-Y. You can also call our buzz line, uh, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Or you can text our buzz line as well if you've got something you'd like to get off your chest with regard to the weather event that we have been experiencing here on the West Coast this last eight days or so. People already uh, chiming in. On our hot question of the day, it looks like 54% right now saying dumb drivers. Dumb drivers. Like pulling a U-turn in the middle of the Patello Bridge. Come on. Or people trying to cruise around in real rear-wheel drive bald summer tires. We've all seen you. And we don't appreciate it. Roads not being cleared sits at about 19%. Transit problems and unshoveled sidewalks, 13%, 14%, respectively. We got about 300 votes already. And we're just announcing the hot question of the day. So people are definitely getting in on it. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah this Friday, January 17th. It's been a busy week on so many fronts. And certainly on the money laundering file, Sam Cooper our investigative reporter at Global National with another explosive uh, drop from his freedom of information uh, research that he has been doing through just combing through government documents. Um, He, you've got to read it. If you haven't, go to our Global BC website and read Sam Cooper's article from Wednesday, unearthing the, the depth of money laundering and the evils associated with organized crime and the, the allegations that are attached to this, that government officials and law enforcement turned a blind eye to some degree. Um, we had Attorney General David Eby on on Wednesday to talk about just the lack of consequences on this file.
1: Yeah, that is, one, that is 100% um, my concern. Uh, whether it's the, the criminals dropping off the cash to folks who walked it into the casinos or uh, allegations that uh, government knew and didn't take action. I mean, why was it until 2017 when these kinds of bulk cash transactions were banned? Um, all of these issues, um, I think there has been a real lack of accountability. And uh, we held off on a public inquiry because our hope was that there would be criminal investigations that would result in prosecutions. Of individuals, And when that didn't happen, when the prosecutions collapsed uh, under their own weight, uh, we went to public inquiry to hopefully answer those questions and bring some accountability.
2: So
0: that was Attorney General David Eby on with me on Wednesday. Yesterday on the Linda Steele show, Andrew Wilkinson, BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, joined Linda and said that he's fully prepared to cooperate with the inquiry.
3: Uh, We have sent the request into the Ministry of Attorney General. It doesn't go to David E. because he's so political that he's not really a law officer. It's gone to his assistant deputy minister, who's responsible for the uh, documents from prior administrations, and that's in the works. We expect that to be ready for the Cullen Inquiry when it starts in February.
0: This is new. Why did you decide to hand over the documents?
3: Well, we're not handing over the documents. We haven't seen them yet. So we need to get through the documents, see what's pertinent and relevant. And of course, Justice Cullen is a very, very respected and experienced Superior Court judge. He has the power to subpoena documents. He has the power to compel witnesses to appear under oath. So we'll be ready to cooperate with the inquiry, and we're in the process of collecting all the documents. What we'd like to ask is, what are the NDP doing about that? Are they getting their cabinet documents ready? Because they've been in the office now for two and a half years. We haven't seen a single prosecution, nothing at all. So let's see what the NDP are prepared to produce in terms Of documents, we'll be cooperating fully with the Cullen Inquiry because it's the best way, the only way to get all the facts on the table.
0: Okay, so it gets extremely frustrating for many of us, of you listening to that, because it's like we haven't seen the documents. Why have we not been gathering documents on every level of government and law enforcement for years? It's 2020. What Sam Cooper unearthed was a report in 2009 that looked back to prior to 2009. We're talking decades of this in the Lower Mainland. There's a, there's a Vancouver model to money laundering. I've had this conversation a couple of times with our next guest, you know or you love her. She's a former Crown Prosecutor and a columnist with the National Observer. Sandy Garasino is on the line with us. Hi, Sandy. Good morning. It's so frustrating to, to hear the partisan politics around money laundering when it affects everybody in all walks of life.
2: Well, uh, it, it, it's actually extremely frustrating to hear these kind of personal slurs and attacks when the public couldn't be more clear that we just want to get this done. I can't understand how, like you say, it can be 2020. And this report that Sam Cooper unearthed through FOI, uh, Freedom of Information Request, um, that was in the hands of the Liberal Party through not only Rich Coleman, but other individuals, other ministry officials for years, Yeah, for 11 years. That has been in the possession. So what is, what's this mystery? We don't know what the documents say. We know what the documents say. We, and they tell us, go and find out, go further. We need more information. We need more knowledge about what communications happened between government officials, among government officials.
0: And one, uh, one that, of the things, uh, Sandy, that, that Sam Cooper, if, if somebody listening is just catching up on the story, one of the allegations or one of the things that Sam Cooper uncovered within this 2009 report was a government employee who knowingly gave an organized crime, uh, a criminal, a criminal, Um, the opportunity to buy a portion of a casino. And and then they left the government and, and became an employee of the casino themselves. I asked straight up, do we know who this person is? And it was like, well, we're not really sure. How is that oh. not the the main focus and goal to find the people who did the things that led to the fentanyl crisis, to the housing crisis, to the money laundering in Vancouver, to the things that Sam unearthed about um, the sex trade and child abuse and prostitution? Like, it's just, there's so many layers to this. It's so frustrating that there are no consequences.
2: Well, it, it just gets back to look at the posture. The posture continues to be defensive i won't say obstructionist but it is absolutely throwing sand in the faces of everybody who is trying to get answers uh and they're just at this point the failure of senior liberal party officials the failure of excuse me andrew wilkinson to just come clean on all of this. The, the, the information is in, is in the party's possession. Right. Um, That's the
0: piece. Because Andrew Wilkinson did point out, uh, when he first spoke with Linda, it was a fascinating interview. I, I highly recommend everybody uh, go and listen to the, the archives. Linda's got it on her Twitter. But in, like right off the hop, he said, I, didn't even, I, I wasn't even elected until 2013, so I'm finding out what you're finding out with you. And Linda was like, well, no, you do have access to those... Uh, documents that you would need to uh, waive the procedure on holding those so that they can be seen and looked at. And then he said that he would be cooperating with the inquiry. But why is it taking until now? Like, why not? If you weren't there when this was going down behind the scenes, whether it be with the Liberal Party, the NDP was still there in opposition when the Liberals were there. So it was happening on everybody's watch as far as the taxpayer is concerned. Why isn't there more um, transparency here, Sandy?
2: The only thing that I can conclude is that the liberal leadership, the Liberal Party, is afraid of what is going to come to light. Mm. I mean, at this point, it it would be it would be virtual incompetence not to have informed themselves as to what their exposure is. That's what every organization does. This has been. This is this this train crash has been coming for years we've been watching it coming for years you have to have been hiding under a rock not to have seen all of the, the everything advance you've got to know that the more information comes out the more damaging it's going to be it's not like exculpatory information comes out we don't really we don't really see exculpatory infor- ex- information all we see is a story that gets darker and darker and darker. And the individuals responsible have been in the government for years. I mean, Andrew Wilkinson, 2013, 2013. Mm -hmm. I mean, good heavens. It's 2020. That's seven seven years ago. Um, And he's a lawyer. He understands. He knows. He was reading the newspapers. He knew what was going on at the time it was happening. And there's a long history of it. Why wasn't it... uh, a priority of his of his of his parties of his governments to clean this up years ago because they're covering for something and yes. i do not buy the excuse that this was in order to, so that the bc lottery corporation could um make more money I mean, on the one hand well, that's pretty ridiculous. You know, we can all make more money if we allow prostitution and drug dealing and and um, money laundering, gal- and, uh, gambling. You know, yeah. all all of this, all of these are very profitable enterprises. Organized crime is made out like bandits on it for years, um, so that's no excuse. But I it also doesn't wash. It doesn't pass the smell test. The fact that regulators were moving from their responsibility to oversee um, the gambling uh, enterprises and going straight into the pay of the enterprise. This is classic, classic flag of potential corruption. And again and again, look at what we've seen. We've seen... GPEB, Gambling for, uh, Policy and Enforcement Branch regulators who were sounding the alarms, got fired. Right, Gamble- the Regulators who were being helpful to the industry managed to f- feather their nests and find a soft landing place within the industry. Uh, when Inspector Barry Baxter of the RCMP Proceeds of Crime was sounding the alarm, Rich Coleman, then Solicitor General, was, took to the airwaves to say... Uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and none of the senior RCMP people that I know think that he's got any leg to stand on. In fact, we that that was clearly false. We have the documentation now in front of us to say that was not true. That was a, that was a falsehood, and and I, it's it, it, it's just flatly not believable to me that. Rich Coleman didn't know when he said it, but he was misleading the public. And, and Rich, why?
0: we're trying to get him to come on the radio. Uh, our Alan Regan, who's Linda Steele's uh, producer, reached out to him. And basically, Rich Coleman hung up on him uh, when trying to book an interview. And Rich Coleman just says, everything you guys are talking about is inaccurate. It's like, well, come on and talk about the accuracies. Let's talk about what actually happened. It just, It just feels like... Um, there, nobody wants to be transparent on anything. And the fact here is that the truth will eventually come out and, and the, it's gone from this bubbling issue to a can of worms to Pandora's box. And it's not law enforcement or our government, taxpayer funded government that is getting to the bottom of this, but investigative journalists that are going through freedom of information act documents.
2: You know, Peter German had access to that report. Yeah, he did. Years ago. And we didn't see, it. it was all, you know, everything was inadvertent. It was inadvertent. It was, oh, it was by accident. He had the report that said that organized crime had infiltrated the casino industry. And there he's saying, oh, this this is all accidental. We have to get off this business of people being lily-livered about Calling a spade a spade. Yeah, and I'm really hoping. My concern is that the Cullen inquiry, the terms of re- reference, I I would hope they can dive that that Justice Cullen can dive into this. My fear is that he's looking deeper, generally at a at a at an industry from a general perspective, not launching a particular investigation of individuals who. May have violated their um, their public duties, Uh, and but it appears from your quote from Dave Eby that that there was some investigation as to whether there could could be any prosecutions, and and the result came back negative, which all of which is just terribly terribly concerning, and I think the public just feels. Like they are throwing up their hands, um, feeling helpless, if, if this is the, where we stand today.
0: I certainly am one of those people. Sandy, thank you for taking some time out for us today. We always appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jody. Jody Vanson in for Simi, Sarah, and I want to get to a little bit of a flu update. There's actually new news today on a mysterious virus. This just in. Airports in New York, San Francisco, and L.A. are going to start screening passengers arriving from Wuhan, China for infection with a mysterious respiratory virus that's killed two and sickened at least 45 others. Uh, but 100 experts from the Center for Disease Control are being deployed to those three airports, uh, those three cities, uh, and screenings will commence tomorrow. There's a lot to unpack with regard to that virus. But here at home, Canada's chief public health officer says an early spike in a strain of influenza B this flu season has sent more kids to the hospital. Uh, Dr. Theresa Tam actually says influenza B doesn't usually peak until February or later, but this strain is circling across the country, along with a strain of influenza A, which typically targets the elderly. Uh, She says the double dose of both influenza A and B strains has not been seen in Canada since 2015. And I remember that to be a significant flu season. And then there's this respiratory bug Simi and I were talking about this morning. If you've had a cough that's just been lingering and lingering, I just had my son, I finally took him to the doctor just to double check. And they're like, nope, it could take four to six weeks for the cough to go away. I thought, that's crazy. But there's no fluid in the lungs. And that's important to check. Uh, Let's talk about this flu with somebody who's on a front line. When I get hit with a bug or anybody in my family does, the first thing I do is go to the pharmacist in my neighborhood and ask, what's going around? What are you seeing? Your pharmacist is a great resource. Joining us on the line is Gianni Del Negro, who's a pharmacist with London Drugs. Hi, Gianni.
4: Hi there. How are you doing?
0: I'm good, thank you. Uh, Are you seeing the flu hit harder this season, or is that just a figment of our imagination?
4: Uh, We kind of expected it to be worse this year because uh, Asia had such a bad flu season last year, but uh, I actually haven't noticed a huge spike in terms of people coming in with flu symptoms. Um, In fact, I mean, normally January and and into February are usually our worst months for the flu, Um, But we haven't seen quite as much as we normally see around this time.
0: And what about flu shots more than typically or about average? Where are you at with regard to people coming in and saying, set me up? Yeah, I'm in a new
4: store this year, so I can't really compare it against last year, but uh, we've definitely done a a lot of flu shots this year. And there still still seems to be a lot of interest, even even in January, which is generally, you know, most people get their flu shots earlier in the season. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing a fair number of people still coming in, even in January, to get their flu shots. And if you haven't had it yet, you should still come in and get it. It's not too late.
0: It's not too late. Good to know. Because, Johnny, a lot of people say, well, you know, if you get it now, it's still a couple of weeks before you're, you know immunized against the strain that you get the shot for, right?
4: Exactly. It does take about two weeks for the vaccine to become fully effective, Mm -hmm. but it's better to have something than not to have anything because, again, there there can sometimes be multiple different strains circulating. So you might get hit with one, but then the other the next one that comes along, you might be protected for. So it's still recommended you try to get your flu shot if you haven't had it yet. There's still lots of time to catch the flu.
0: That speaks to one of the myths, I think, that floats around about flu shots, that they're just like, well, they're hit and miss. Sometimes they don't help at all. Is there sort of an underlying, like it might help you, even if it's not an exact match, it might shorten the duration or severity of the flu?
4: Well, anything you can do to help reduce the severity is worth it. So, yeah. I mean, we don't, we can't always predict exactly what flu strains are going to be circulating at any particular time. Um, I mean, the fl- getting the flu shot is your best defense against protect, you know, against the flu. So, I, I highly recommend if you haven't had it, you should still come out and get it. Um, again. You know for the most part, it works very well, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know everyone should still get the flu shot
0: okay, Gianni, I want you to debunk the biggest myth about flu shots. Can you get the flu from a flu shot? <laughs> <laughs> uh
4: no, no, you can't the flu the flu shots uh, that we use are are inactivated now theoretically, the flu mist, which was the the nasal spray that we used, especially for younger children so that they didn't need to have needles, that was a live vaccine. So technically, theoretically, you could get the flu from that one if you were immune compromised, but the majority of people get the flu shot and you cannot get the flu from the flu shot.
0: I didn't know that about the nasal mist. My son did get that a couple of years running and then he's like, no, I can take the shot. I'm fine. Right. So was that, was it my imagination or was the nasal mist not available this year?
4: It wasn't available this year. I think I'm not sure exactly the reason why. It, it hasn't been discontinued. Uh, my understanding was that because there was such a delay in determining what was going to be in the flu shot this year, that it, it kind of put the manufacturer in a bit of a bind, and right. they, they just couldn't couldn't manufacture enough enough quantities to make it uh, worthwhile to bring it to market.
0: We're with Gianni uh, Del Negro, who's a pharmacist with London Drug. Great resource is your pharmacist if you have questions about whatever the medications might be. And we're talking specifically about the flu and the flu shot here. And I want one more question with regard to the flu shot because I'm a big... Personally, I'm a proponent of believing science. I vaccinate my child, I get vaccinated. I get the flu shot regularly because I take care of my uh, elderly father who is in a home and and I can't go in there if I'm not properly uh, inoculated or it puts him at risk unless I wear a mask and I'd prefer not to do that uh, when visiting. So all of those things considered, when I say that out loud, inevitably... My email inbox or my Twitter feed fills up with anti-vaxxers or people telling me how loose and dangerous I'm being by supporting a flu vaccine that could have a negative reaction. What are the, uh, what are the dangers associated with getting a flu shot? Uh,
4: I mean, there's, there's risks and benefits to any treatment that you do, but the flu shot is extremely safe, as are most vaccinations. Um, serious side effects are like one in a million. When it comes to most vaccines. So it's very rare. Um, But when you look at the diseases that are being protected by the vaccine, those are far worse. I mean, you know, for example, with the measles outbreak that we had, there's a, you know, one in a thousand chance that you could die from measles. Yeah. especially with children. So, Think of
0: those odds. Uh, one in a yeah, thousand versus one, versus one in a million. You know, yeah. 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 I'll take the exactly. vaccine. Thanks. So if someone comes in to London Drugs and talks to you at the pharmacy and says, I've got the flu, Johnny, What? what should I do? What's your advice?
4: Well, what you need to do is treat the symptoms. We can't, uh, we can't make the flu go away any faster, but we can allow your body to help fight it more effectively. So, you know, lots of fluids, you treat the specific symptoms, whether that's nasal discharge or a headache or, or achiness, uh, that sort of thing. So we can, we can provide rec- medication recommendations to, to assist you with those symptoms.
0: Right. And don't, I've got friends who are like, yeah, I took NyQuil and, um, Neo together. Don't do that.
4: No, no. I mean, the cough and cold section can be quite uh, confusing for a lot of consumers because there are so many options out there and many of the products contain the same ingredients. You want to be really careful that you're not duplicating medications. Ask the pharmacist.
0: And that's what you're there for. And we're really glad that you were here for us, Johnny. Thank you. You're most welcome. Jody Vance in for Simi on this Friday. And we are very much trying to thread through this program a, a search for accountability, a search for urgency, for answers, for consequences, in fact, on the money laundering file. Uh, and it—it it is just such an explosive article that Sam Cooper released on Wednesday. He, of course, our investigative journalist who has been just diving into FOI documents for years now and really shining a light on the corruption the 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 criminal acts and the the underbelly the connection between money laundering and fentanyl and and the deaths associated with the fentanyl crisis and how the money laundering in casinos have impacted our housing market like it's just it's a big it's a, it's a Pandora's box. I'm getting a lot of feedback from listeners here, and I want you to keep it coming. Uh, you can email me, jody, at cknw.com. You can text our buzz line at 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. I've got a text, actually, from, from excuse me from our buzz line on this topic that says, regarding this money laundering, I strongly believe there are top politicians, police, judges, Realtors, as well as other influential people who are involved, I'd be extremely surprised to see it go any further. We are all counting down to the Cullen Inquiry and hopeful that that will be fruitful in, in exposing who might have known something that could have saved us from um, being just held captive to this organized crime. Uh, We want to get the very learned perspective of somebody who knows uh, how this all works, and that is Wally Opal, a former B.C. Attorney General who joins us on the line. Uh, Thanks for taking some time out for us, Wally.
1: Always good to be with you, Jody.
0: Okay, so I've got another email from, from Barb, and I, I'm going to read it to you because it kind of echoes sort of a summary of what we've been hearing, the frustration of the public and really the undermining of public trust. She says, you keep mentioning that the NDP were the opposition while all this corruption was running rampant with the Liberal government in power. Then Mr. Wilkinson implies that in two and a half years, the NDP should have fixed it. I'm frustrated with the lack of consequences so far, as we all are, but let's put the blame where it belongs, squarely with the liberals do we honestly believe that any opposition party would have had this information made available to them and wouldn't have brought it to light this happened on the liberal watch no matter who is in power their job is to work for the people they let us down in a most criminal way that's from barb in kamloops how do you answer that
1: i don't know if there's any real answer to that but i think when the subject of money laundering comes up uh an inordinate amount of blame is, is, is uh, sent away of the politicians, and I don't think the political people have that much to do with it. I mean, let's look at this logically for a minute. Okay. These are criminal cases that we're looking at, so, so that means we need to have police investigating these things. And I don't know how much police investigation was done during the time that the money laundering was going on, in fact, is going on. The other thing you've got to know is that this is a national problem. This is not just a provincial problem. So, it is,
0: but we're on, we're on in British Columbia, and we're specifically yeah. on in the Lower Mainland, so it really yeah. does matter to people listening right now. And one oh, of the I things, if I may, the government disbanded the RCMP unit after the I get unit, after the report warned that a figure connected to Asian organized crime bought a stake in a casino, and that the regulator allowed it, then left the government to go work at that casino. That's what's in Sam Cooper's story. To say the government's not involved, this seems multi-layered. I
1: didn't. I didn't say the government wasn't involved. I'm oh, okay. just saying that I'm just saying that there's an ignored amount of uh, of uh, comments made towards what the government does. Keep in mind that governments don't don't direct investigations. Investigations are conducted by the police. But you're absolutely right that it comes to policy matters, it is a matter for governments to direct the police as to what needs to be investigated. You can't you can't interfere in the investigation, but there is a role for government to play in this. I think that if you're looking at this objectively, there's probably enough blame to go around for everybody. When I say that, that I don't, I think a lot of people probably were not aware of what was happening until uh, all of this came out, and a lot of different issues from investigative journalists and everybody else came out. I think that people weren't aware of the the gravity, the seriousness of what was happening. Well, there's somebody that, who
0: was aware, and that would be Solicitor General Rich Coleman.
1: Well, you know, I can't say that, and I I don't know. I don't know how much of a role he would have in the day-to-day investigations of crime. I mean, uh, you just don't know. Politicians don't direct investigations. And I'm not covering up here for Rick Coleman. He's Richard Coleman. He doesn't need my help. But all I'm saying is that you don't tell the police who to investigate and who not to investigate. But
0: you, but, you can disband uh, an RCMP unit. Because that is what that is what Sam Cooper uncovered, and it happened yeah. in two thousand and nine. And when we spoke with David yeah. Eby, as Attorney General, yeah. David Eby, with us yeah. on Wednesday, and we said, "Did did Peter German know about this two thousand and nine report?" And David Eby said, "Yes."
1: Not so that may be the case. I am not in I am not in a position to really contradict it Or, or no, confirm I, I would it like to.
0: One. I'd like to tap into your your knowledge and awareness with regard sure. to how how large has this web been cast? Can we put all of this back into a box? We can't rewind what has happened, how it's impacted our housing market, how it's impacted uh, the downtown east side and really the the drug supply, the recreational drug supply across British Columbia and now across Canada with fentanyl, killing people, killing people on the daily. Like, how do we... Uh, Absolutely. What do we do? Okay, I can...
1: I think we all have different views of what what we can do and what we can't do. I think the Cullen Commission will give us some answers. But the fact is, we need more investigations. We need more aggressive investigations. The criminal code is fairly clear, uh, but there haven't been that many charges laid. And the charges that have been laid often have resulted in guilty pleas for lesser included charges. Or stayed
0: uh, so, charges on the biggest case. Yeah. Like, that was well, a big disappointment. And the public trust is very much being eroded here, Wally. You have to acknowledge that. Like, people are frustrated that the answers are constantly, well, eventually we'll find out once we have the next well, inquiry. We had Peter German, and now we have the Cullen inquiry. Like, people are feeling the effects of this on a daily basis in and around I'm, the south coast of B.C. I'm,
1: I'm, not, I'm not defending the system for a minute. And when you say... You'll have to admit. Hey, wait a minute! I don't have to admit anything. Oh. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not on trial. And no,
0: secondly, no, I'm not putting you on trial, uh, yeah. sir. Don't well, take it that way. I'm sorry no. if, if I came across that way. We're just yeah. looking for a, a straight line answer. Well, you're sure. well, you're I'm, more I'm familiar sure, than government in this yeah. province than most. Yeah. That's fair yeah. to say, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can tell you that probably what's happened is, and we'll get some answers from the Cullen Commission. Probably what's happened. It seems fairly clear that there wasn't enough investigation going on in this particular area. There hasn't been enough investigation going on in white-collar crime. And maybe that has to do with a lack of resources or the lack of uh, priorities on the part of police forces. Those are things that we need to know. Clearly, the area of money laundering has been way out of control, and people haven't paid attention to it. So now we have this wake-up call, Peter German, I thought wrote an excellent report about what was happening. And that was an eye opener for, for a lot of people, but it should have been known to all those people who are in the investigation business. So maybe they didn't have enough resources. Maybe there weren't enough police officers to investigate these things. So those are things that we need to find out.
0: When you talk about investigative and resources and, and and police officers, are you referencing the RCMP?
1: Well, I am mean, all police officers. I'm not, I'm not laying the blame or saying that the RCMP No, no, I just wondered who you were yeah, referencing,
0: no. sir. I'm just trying to no, k- clarify. Uh, That's just my job no, as a no, journalist. No, no, it's, to...
1: it's, you know, it's, it's a policing issue. It's an enforcement issue. The criminal code is quite clear that these are offenses. And uh, if there are offenses, and if there is evidence there, then what should happen is the investigations ought to take place, and the Crown should prosecute if there is sufficient evidence for the crown to prosecute. So that's the way the system works. Right. And, uh, and I, I suspect what's happened is that there hasn't been enough attention paid to any of this. And that's why we had the German report. And, uh, that's why we've had all of these other things. And that's why the government appointed Austin Cullen to, uh, conduct the commission of inquiry to find out what happened, what wasn't done, what should have been done. Uh, clearly, the system has failed in so far as the uh, money laundering has been going on it's obviously a cancer in the criminal justice system so what do we do about it so we have to we have to address it head on and do something about it
0: with an inquiry like the Cullen inquiry that we're about to embark on how long do the processes of these usually take what can what can the citizens of BC expect
1: well you know i've been involved in five inquiries now yes. and i can tell you that Not one of them ever finished on time. And the reason for that is that once you start peeling away the onion, there becomes more and more substance that you have to look at. And more and more evidence comes to light, and you have to investigate that light. We did the Picton inquiry, and when we started looking at the investigative failures of what took place, more and more evidence came to light. So I think that while there is a timeline that has been set in this case, as there is in all inquiries, I think we have to wait to see what what evidence comes before Austin Cullen. He's an experienced judge. Uh, he's got very good lawyers that are working with him. And I would expect that uh, as as we hear the evidence, there'll be more evidence that will come to light. And hopefully something concrete will come out of it and that, that we'll all gain from that. that uh, that's what we hope for. That's why they call the inquiry. The purpose of the inquiry is to find out what happened, What didn't happen, and how can we fix it?
0: Yeah, what should have happened. I want to know, uh, in your experience, what we, the public, the taxpayer, can expect um, as the Cullen Cullen Inquiry gets underway. What what can we see happen? Well, I think
1: that the the purpose of an inquiry, as I said a moment ago, is to conduct an investigation to find out what happened. And uh, I would like to see... uh, uh austin cullen and his lawyers call witnesses who can tell us what happened where were the mistakes made what could have been done Uh those are things that need to be looked at and that's why we have the inquiry it's a you know another aspect of of this whole thing is the role of the media i think that the the investigative journalists that have covered this have done an excellent job and one of the problems we're getting in a in a uh social democracy is we're getting more and more newspapers that are folding which means that there's a source of investigative journalism that doesn't uh doesn't play a role anymore so i think we need that i think the the public deserves answers and i think all different people can come forward and give those answers and the media he has a very relevant role to play in this.
0: Absolutely. Like, kudos to Sam yeah. Cooper and John Waugh. They've yeah. been digging yeah. through FOI documents for years on this front. We yeah. wouldn't know half of what we know without the hard work know, of that, our that, investigators, yeah, which you're yeah, right. I'm, you're right.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm digressing here for a minute, uh, Jody, but, you know, I really get alarmed when I see all these newspapers that are folding. You know, in a democracy, we need newspapers that can hold the people who make the decisions their feet to the fire. Yeah. We have to hold... A, the institutions accountable.
0: And And uh, hopefully the Cullen Inquiry will help with doing that. So my question about the inquiry, once it is done, probably not in the frame of time that is is being promised, or the hopeful, it's kind of like doing renovations on your house. It's going to take twice as long and cost three times as much. We get that. But once it is done, once there is a result in an inquiry such as this, what then are the consequences for those who are identified to be the ones that missed the
1: That's a a really good question. First of all, the inquiry, no doubt, will make recommendations. It's important that those recommendations that the inquiry makes be implemented if they're reasonable recommendations. Secondly, uh, if there are recommendations regarding criminal prosecutions, then it's up to the Crown to look at the evidence independently and determine whether or not there's enough evidence to lay criminal charges.
0: Okay, so, so let me just let that- me just reiterate that because I, I, I think I understand what you're saying, but I want to make sure that I do. So at the end of the Cullen inquiry, if it is identified that somebody probably maybe was taking part in criminal activity, that would then go and become a separate case that would then have to be called, witnesses called, uh, lawyered up, and, and a whole separate judicial process.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you why. Okay. Because inquiries have different rules of evidence. Right. In inquiry, you don't have strict rules of evidence when it comes to hearsay, that the evidence isn't always tested in cross examination. Right. Like a courtroom. So you get a lot of prejudicial evidence that comes out in inquiries. When I did the Picton inquiry, we did a whole bunch of, we heard a whole bunch of evidence that was quite scurrilous. You know, the the blame is thrown around without the opportunity of those people who are blamed to have an opportunity to answer.
0: Right, fair. So, but it also so, gives you that, I'm sorry, I'm up against the clock here, but it also gives yeah. you maybe a nugget that leads yeah. you to one oh, more thing that actually absolutely. gets you to the truth, which is why an yeah. inquiry is so important. You know what, Wally? Absolutely. I really, you've You've helped shed some light on what we can expect moving forward for a very frustrated public. I thank you for your time. All right, thank you. Jody Vance in for Simi on this Friday. Getting lots of emails. Jody at cknw.com. I see them. I'm replying to them. We'll use them later on in the program. Also loving the BuzzLine texts we're getting. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. You can also give us a call on our BuzzLine anytime. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. And we will open the phones in the next segment because I wonder what you think should constitute distracted driving. So keep that... In mind, uh, we're gonna open up phones at 604 280 9898. Of course, it's got to be hands free if you're driving. Don't touch your phone, that's dist- distracted driving. But where do you keep your phone when you drive? Like for real, where is it? Mine? Usually in the cup holder. That's where the plug is, and it sits on my center console piece there. Uh, apparently, that's a no no given uh, what has been happening with folks getting ticketed for having their phones within reach. Kyla Lee joins us on the line on yet another overturned ticket for having a cell phone in a cup holder. Hi, Kyla.
5: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Here we go again. Again, again, round and round it goes. It does. I'm reading your blog, which I love, uh, but another interesting twist to this particular um, case. Can you lay out what, what Mr. Ali did or did not or allegedly did, I guess.
5: This case is different because he, the officer, had testified that he saw him in his rear view mirror while parked in front of Mr. Ali, looking, you know, up and down, doing the head bob. You know, when you can tell people are texting because they're, you know, glancing yeah. up every few seconds. He said he could see that, so he knew he was using his phone. That he could see the phone in his rear rear view mirror, and then when he had the opportunity, he pulled Mr. Ali over, and he saw that the phone was now sitting charging in the cup holder. Mr. Ali testified and he said, I wasn't using my phone, it was just in the cup holder the entire time. And he was uh, disbelieved in court, but the conviction was overturned even though the judge accepted that the officer saw him using his phone because the judge then went one step further and said, and it doesn't really matter who I believe because the phone was in the cup holder and it's not allowed to be there. So where are we supposed to put our phones You can put them in the cup holder if you're not using them. Oh, okay. The law law is actually clear on this, but for whatever reason, the message is not making it to police officers or to the people who are deciding cases in traffic court. And so it's leading to all of these cases being overturned on appeal because the law is not being applied correctly.
0: This seems like such a waste of resources, isn't it?
5: It's a huge waste of resources. It costs a lot of money for uh, people to pay to run courts, to have judges deciding the same thing over and over again and trying to make the law abundantly clear, to pay prosecutors to deal with the appeals. Um, It's really disappointing that this is continuing to go to court and continuing to not be made clear to the people who need to have it made clear to them so that these tickets don't happen in the first
0: place. Okay, let's put the qualifier on here that obviously texting while driving is dangerous it is unacceptable it should not be done Uh, to have your phone sitting in your cup holder is it seems like the the police officers that are ticketing for that could better well find the driver who is clearly bobbing and weaving down the street trying to text their friends or what have you read their latest um while in motion. I, I've never really understood that, you know, the police officer parked in front of Mr. Ali's car looking in the rear view mirror and seeing the head movement of, of clearly he's looking at his phone and then that's a reason to pull someone over. It, it, it just doesn't seem like that's a danger. I get that that's a symptom of a bigger problem because that person sitting at the stoplight might then miss the green light and then start pulling into traffic while still utilizing their phone. That's the, the no. But clearly that was not the case here.
5: Exactly. And I think the law, I mean, if I could rewrite the law, um, I would I would change the penalties to reflect the conduct. So if you don't want people to be, you know, approaching that danger by using their phone at the red light, make the penalty less for doing that because right. it's not as serious. And make the penalty more significant for those cases where the people are in motion and we see it every day. You don't have to look for very long to see somebody holding the phone to the ear or actively texting while rolling
0: along. Um, every damn day. Day, Kyla, every single day. And that's, I think, why it's so frustrating when you see somebody getting a ticket for being still and texting.
5: Mm -hmm. Or even just, you know, glancing down to see who sent me a text. I need to pull over to deal with this. I mean, on the spectrum of dangerousness, one is far more distracting and poses a a bigger risk than the other, but they're treated the same, which makes a lot of people, including myself, feel like the law isn't fair.
0: Right. So what goes into rewriting a law when we learn from uh, the mistakes of having it sort of blanket?
5: Uh, Well, a lot. It's expensive to rewrite a law, too, because it takes time for all of the people in the legislature who work on drafting it and approving it and, you know, arguing about the draft that's going to ultimately be tabled and then debates in the legislature and time away from other bills and If the law is resulting in people getting tickets, lots of tickets, it's bringing in money into the government, the government's not motivated to spend money changing it so that fewer people get tickets and fewer dollars go into government coffers.
2: What
0: are other distracted driving laws? Like, I I mean, how many times have we... gone through a drive through name your restaurant, let's go McDonald's, you grab yourself an Egg McMuffin on your way to work, you're driving down the road, you're eating the McMuffin. Is that the same ticket?
5: It's not the same ticket. That ticket would be a ticket for driving with your controls obstructed. It's only three points. A cell phone ticket is four, and the fine is $109, whereas a cell phone ticket is $368.
0: Wow. Wow.
5: But- The Egg McMuffin is more dangerous than the red light texting.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's so complicated. I've seen people with books reading a newspaper at a a stoplight. I've seen people driving down the road, putting mascara on in their rearview mirror. Uh, I don't allow my dogs to sit on my lap when I drive. I don't know. Does Wrigley sit up front with you? (laughs)
5: On the front seat and he tries to get on my lap and I have to repeatedly remind him that that's illegal.
0: Right. That's like my little uh, Calvin. I'm like, no, no, no. You're not allowed. You're not allowed. You're too much of a distraction. Okay. So all of these things that come into play with distracted driving, I'm going to open up the phone lines for the next segment, 604-280-9898. What do you think on distracted driving laws? What constitutes distracted driving or what have you seen that makes your head explode uh, when you're driving down the road and you see the person next to you what have you seen people doing that is distracted driving that may not be cell phone related or are you still seeing people with their phone up to their ear as as Kyla and I are both saying that that we see Uh, when you get pulled over and and a police officer says I saw you touch your phone and you didn't touch your phone you take the ticket and then what do you do?
5: You dispute it. Uh, you, the first thing you do is go down to an ICBC or a courthouse um, and file the ticket in dispute um, because you're presumed innocent until they prove you guilty in court. You don't get the pi- fines. You don't have to pay the penalties. You don't have to have any points on your record until that's adjudicated in court.
0: And typically, how much does it cost to have a lawyer help you fight uh, a ticket like that?
5: Um, every place is different, but the fees that we charge are, I'm not going to say our exact price on right, the radio, right, but right. I'll, fair I'll enough, say fair enough. it's less than what the ticket will ultimately cost you after all the fines and penalties are taken into consideration.
0: Okay, so. that's what I was looking for. Is, uh, is it worth your while to push yeah. back if you don't think that you were guilty of that? I just got an email Dave sent in, says Kyla rocks. Yeah, push back on the nanny state! Exclamation point was... Uh, What Dave said, hopefully he sent it from his iPhone, not while driving, because that would be unfortunate. Uh, Kyla Lee, always a pleasure to have you on um, and tell Paul that I just got your calendar for 2020, and I love it. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Hilarious. I got this manila envelope and opened it up, and there are Paul Doroshenko and Kyla Lee's uh, calendar. Hilariously fun. Always a good uh, conversation uh, with you, Kyla. Make it a great day and have a great weekend.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Jody Vance in for Simi on this Friday. Um, you, everybody knows now fentanyl, the crisis, the opioid crisis, the, the deaths. The I mean, the numbers are staggering. And we all, I bet, I'm going to go out on a limb here, we all know someone who's been affected by the opioid crisis. Sadly, I have more than I care to share in terms of people I know and love who have lost loved ones to fentanyl. And, and none of them, I shouldn't say none, I, two of them maybe had an issue uh, with, with addiction. Others were recreational drug users. Uh, the supply is tainted to the point where, well, our next story is a really very relevant one. Uh, Vancouver Coastal Health is in, introduced, introducing uh, new test kits. So you... If you are going to use a recreational drug, we'll be able to test that drug prior to using that drug. Up until this point, um, experts and law enforcement and and health professionals have been saying, whatever you do, don't use alone. We've all learned how to use a naloxone kit. Um, It's it's that deadly piece of this puzzle that until the drug supply can be cleaned or uh, if it is um, legitimized, Uh, uh, decriminalized, whatever the right word is, we are struggling through this and need to find ways to save lives. Uh, And and this test kit could be a step in in the right direction. Let's bring in Dr. Mark Lesishan, who is with uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, a medical health officer, uh, to talk more about these kits. Uh, Thanks for being with us, doctor. Hi there, no problem. Can you tell us what these test kits are comprised of?
6: Well, I mean, these are sentinel essentially fentanyl test strips that were designed to test urine for fentanyl. And we started using them at Insight a few years ago to let people... Test diluted samples of their drugs. We, we tested them first at Insight because we wanted sort of a controlled environment where we could see if people could use them, if they gave good results, if people, um, you know, if it changed people's behavior. And, and we saw that, that, that it did. When, you know, when people got positive results, they used less drugs and they had less overdoses. So we've been expanding the locations where that kind of on site drug checking is available. And we've also been using other technologies like spectrometers and things like that. But ultimately, um, You know, people are dying alone uh, when they use drugs alone in private residences, behind closed doors, things like that, because there's a lot of stigma associated with drug use. It's also illegal. And um, so we really wanted to get this drug, these drug checking technologies uh, into people's hands so they could use them you know, right before they use drugs in the places that they use drugs. And so that's what this project is
0: about. So when you say this this test strip, it, it detects the presence of fentanyl. It doesn't say the concentration, right? Yeah, unfortunately, all it tells is presence or absence. You know,
6: it's a relatively simple technology. Um, but we still think that that's useful because yeah. it's one thing to know in theory that your drugs might be it con- you know, contaminated with fentanyl. It's another thing to know that the drug you're about to take does have fentanyl in it. And, um, and you know, what we've seen from, from the... We did a pilot study this spring and summer here and also in Interior Health, looking at what happens when people, you know, use these strips at home. And basically, they get good results. They get the same results within a percent as we were getting on site during wow. that same period of time. So people can definitely do this at home. And then what we saw is that... Um, you know, people changing their behavior in a way that was positive was more likely than in a way that was negative. Many people didn't actually change their behavior after getting the result because, you know, they sort of maybe expected to get a fentanyl positive result. But, you know, 27 of percent of people did change their behavior in a positive way compared to only two percent that you know used in more risky ways so we still think that overall this is
0: another tool that people can use to help make safer decisions it hopefully will save even one life it'll be worth it that's sort of where i come from what about fentanyl? does it detect that well it does detect uh A variety of the other fentanyl analogs
6: including carfentanil but unfortunately it's less sensitive for carfentanil Mm. than it is for fentanyl. The test is designed for fentanyl and um, you know the other little problem with carfentanil is that when it's present it's present in very small amounts so you may miss the grain of it. It is possible this is not a perfect test but you know the reality is that 90% of the opioids we are testing are are testing positive. So, you know, there's, there's not too many that are being missed there. Did you just say 90%? 90%, yeah.
0: 90%, doctor.
6: Yeah, but the 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 degree is much less in other types of drugs like crystal meth and, right. and and stimulants where the degree of contamination is sort of, you know, less than 5%. But that's not zero. And people who are about to take a stimulant, you know, they are not expecting to take, you know, opioid-like fentanyl. They don't want to take an opioid-like fentanyl. They may not have naloxone ready. They may not, you know, be in a place that knows what, had, what to do with an opioid overdose. So, you know, for people using stimulants, th- this might actually be quite a useful tool as well.
0: So where will these... Uh, uh, fentanyl test kits be made available? There there are four locations, sort well, of pilot? or Yeah, we, we did this pilot
6: project this summer, and, and so those locations, Insight, the Molson Overdose Prevention Site, uh, the Overdose Prevention Society, and the St. Paul's Hospital Overdose Prevention Site, the, that's where the strips are kind of available now. But in the coming days and weeks, we're expanding the number of places where they'll be available. You know, within Vancouver, they're going to be available at the Three Bridges Community Health Centre, the Robert Lilly Lee Community Health Centre, and then we're also making them available outside of Vancouver because we think that Take-home drug checking will be even more important in communities that don't have supervised places right. to consume drugs or don't have some of the other harm reduction services that are available in Vancouver. So, you know, we want to make them available in the Sunshine Coast, in the Sea to Sky Corridor and places like that as well.
0: We're with Dr. Mark Lecission, Vancouver Coastal Health Medical Health Officer. And one of the things that comes to mind for me is like, well, we've already got the naloxone kits basically available at every pharmacy. Why wouldn't we just put this uh, test strip kit side by each with the naloxone as an availability, because as you said, the stigma associated with drug use keeps the person who might be the professional going for the job every day, thinking that they've got it sort of covered and under control and whatever, they might not want to risk going into one of the handful of places where these are available.
6: Yeah, I mean, um, we would like to see these available anywhere where harm reduction supplies are currently available. Mm-hmm. So anywhere you can get clean needles and syringes and things like that, and naloxone kits, we think this is the same type of tool. And so we, you know, our goal is to make it available at all those places. But right now, there's not sort of a provincial program with funding to do that. And so we're sort of rolling this out because we don't want to wait. Right. You know, we've just done this study, we feel it's reasonable to do this. And so that's why we're doing it. But you know, we're in conversation with the the government and the Overdose Emergency Response Centre asking them uh, to to put some funding behind this so that basically this can become a harm reduction supply that people can just pick up anywhere they pick up other things like take-home naloxone.
0: Right, so this is a slow walk towards something that might significantly impact. You just got to get it out there where the need is the greatest and hope that eventually, because there was a time where a naloxone kit was only available at St. Paul's Hospital and at OPS... Exactly. It it takes some while to, you know, get get kind of support for a
6: bigger program and then then to build that. But we didn't want to wait uh, for that program to happen. We think, you know, the best place for people to use these strips is, you know, in private right before they use drugs. And so we want to we want to let people, uh, you know, have them available.
0: And, you know, this kind of dovetails into the, the publicized launch of a new opioid vending machine on the downtown east side. We're seeing we're seeing a shift from the stigma of this into like, we've got to just stop the, we've got to stop the ridiculous numbers of overdose deaths or those who are being, we, we get the death numbers, but we don't get the numbers of people who are significantly impacted for life.
6: Yeah. I mean, drug checking is really a stopgap kind of measure. You know, it's, um, it's not the solution to this problem at right. all. It's just another tool that people can use now while we're not implementing the real solutions. And, you know, safe supply programs are, we believe, part of the solution. This is, you know, you don't need to use drug checking when you're getting a safe supply program. This is a pharmaceutical opioid that you know is safe. And that's the whole point. The the one thing I think that the drug checking programs have done for us in terms of getting a safer supply is they've showed us just how contaminated and how dangerous drugs are. We never used to actually know that Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, people were just using drugs and overdosing, but nobody was testing them. And so now we have a really good understanding of how toxic
0: the drugs are. And I think it provides the rationale for why we need safe supply programs. Very great perspective. Thank you so much for your time today, doctor. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem.